good to be back and had a great, great experience in, in Israel. So wish you could have all been there, especially when we went to places that we've studied together. So it's very special. I have a question to ask you. Since light travels faster than sound, is that why some people appear bright until you hear them speak? I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, just like a newborn baby or a small child is not left to just be cared for on their own, the same is true in the spiritual realm of believers in Jesus. They're not just supposed to be left to fend for themselves and try to make it. They need follow-up of other believers and the encouragement um, and hearing the truth. And this is the purpose of the next missionary journey of Paul. As you saw last week, he and Barnabas had disagreed about taking John Mark with them. And so there was a situation that arose that I'm sure Satan would have loved to exploit in order to harm the progress of the gospel. But in reality, these two different teams developed and split, and so the missionary uh, effort was doubled. So we're looking at the Macedonian call. We look at chapter 16, verse 1. We read, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but the father was a Greek. But his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. So Paul comes there and he is impressed with Timothy. And we read further that it says, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So Paul chooses to travel a different direction than Barnabas and uh, John Mark. So he enters Galatia, really from the opposite direction, seeking to bring encouragement to strengthen the believers there. <clears throat> These men had to be in great physical shape as they crossed the mountains north of Tarsus, arriving in Derby and Lystra. And even though uh, they had attempted to kill Paul by stoning the last time he was there, he was determined to come back and check on the believers there. And it's not by chance that they meet up with this young man named Timothy. Had they not changed the direction on this trip, they would have not met Timothy till much later on. We all know that Timothy would play an important role in the life of Paul, his right-hand man. It would become, rather, it would appear that Paul had led Timothy to faith in Jesus, the first missionary visit. We learn more about Timothy when you read in 2 Timothy. He had a mother named Eunice, a grandmother named Lois, and they had taught him the scriptures as well. So, his father was a Greek, and some suggest that the way the uh, verb is in the Greek that it suggests his father had passed away by this time. So what was unique about Timothy is that he could relate to both cultures, Jewish and Greek cultures. And that's a huge advantage in missionary work. Timothy was probably a late teen in his early 20s, and he was well spoken of believers around him. You can be young and still be someone to look up to spiritually. Though he was so young, he was above reproach, and he was qualified to go along with Paul and have this ministry. And Paul wanted to make sure Timothy was circumcised before they started their work. Now, obviously, his Greek father had not allowed that to happen when he was born, even though his mom was Jewish. There really was no valid controversy. You had a question about that in your lesson today. There really wasn't any valid controversy about Paul doing this. Having Timothy circumcised had nothing to do with his salvation. The earlier uh, 
debate that had gone on in Jerusalem at the council there dealt with the truth that a person needed to be circumcised in order to be, become a believer in Jesus. And that was the error that they dealt with. With Paul taking Timothy with him, he wanted the freedom to go and to minister into synagogues and bring Timothy with him. And no one in the synagogue would have heard or even let them proclaim if they knew Timothy was there and they all knew his dad was a Greek. And so Paul took care of having him circumcised. So we read uh, the principle that Paul spoke about in 1 Corinthians 9, and to the Jew I became as a Jew that I might win some. In the case of this, of Titus, rather, in Galatians 2, Paul did not have him circumcised because that would have sent a message encouraging the legalism that the Judaizers had begun to infiltrate at the church in Galatians. So the bottom line is that missionaries have to be sensitive and alert in the cultures in which they work. The goal is to avoid having unnecessary offense without compromising the scriptures. Sadly, I've seen firsthand missionaries who believe that they have to go make an American church in whatever country they're working in and deny the very culture that the people live in and know oh, this is how we do it in America because like we have the right way. And it's sad there is a great insensitivity to the culture and, and understanding where they're coming from. We see in verses 4 and 5 that as they passed through the cities of Galatia, they were making uh, very clear the teaching from the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem that salvation is only by grace alone through faith. And the result was that churches were being strengthened in the faith and increasing in numbers. And that brings us to Paul and the vision he has for Macedonia in chapter, verses 6 through 10. In some way, the Holy Spirit uh, made it very clear to them that they would avoid going to certain places. Every place they set out, it was a closed door. And certainly there was needy people who needed to hear the gospel in every one of those cities they were attempting to go to. We read they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. They were per not, not permitted to go to Bethnia. God sometimes closes the door, even though there may be a great need there. They tried to go west, they tried to go north, but God had another plan. And so they went to Troas, a port city on the Aegean Sea, and that's where the Lord made it clear he wanted them to bring the gospel to Europe. Many of you have roots in Europe, and this is how the gospel first came there. God gave Paul this vision of a man in Macedonia saying, come over and help us. The direction was very clear. Having discerned the will of God, it appears now that Luke joins the team. He's the historian writing the book, and now he says, we sought to go to Macedonia. So he joins the team. So despite all the obstacles, God can be trusted to open doors and lead us to the places of service that he wants us to be in for him. When it was clear where the team was to go, notice they went immediately, without delay. And so the gospel now goes to Europe. first convert. Well, the winds obviously were good for the voyage, so it only took two days to make it to Macedonia, this Roman colony. And after being there a few days, we read in verse 13, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Obviously, there was no synagogue in this town, which meant there weren't 10 Jewish men who were heads of household. That's, you have to have 10. 
However, there were women who believed in the God of the Old Testament who gathered outside the city to pray. And so these missionaries sat down and began to teach them. This is in such contrast to Paul's background where, you know, the typical Pharisee and Jewish rabbi would pray, thank you that I'm not a woman or a Gentile or a slave. And so here they come, and it's a group of women, and they sit down and began to teach them and taught them the word. What a contrast even to the Roman culture of that day as well, where women were not that highly esteemed. They preached their first audience being women. And I love that. You know, Paul's been accused of being chauvinist and negative about women because he gives the qualifications for elders in the pastoral epistles which makes it clear women are not to be in the role of leadership over men in the church. And of course, our culture and whatever group says that's not really what he meant, he had a woman problem or whatever. Well, no, Paul spoke when God told him to speak, and it's faulty thinking to think he had any negative thinking towards women. He was thrilled to bring the gospel, and here it is to a group of women. In verse 14, we're introduced to Lydia from Thyatira, we read about that place in the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2. She's a seller of purple fabrics. And that was a very costly process because they used the glands from some type of shellfish and roots from a particular plant. So it was expensive. We're glad purple is oh, easy to wear today, right? <laughs> Not a purple in here. But back then it was royalty and only the wealthy who could get clothes or belongings in that color. So she had done well in her business. She had a large enough home to invite these four men home, and eventually believers would meet there. But does she remind you of someone else we met in our, earlier in our study? I couldn't help but think about she was a worshiper of God, even though surrounded in this pagan world that she grew up in. Similar to Cornelius, who believed in the God of Israel, she sought to know and worship the true God. She was seeking truth. She wasn't aware of the gospel. So as they spoke the truth, she listened. God brought the truth to her, and he had prepared her heart to hear it. We read in verse 14 that she was a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. I remind you of what Romans chapter 3 says about everyone born on this planet, that we are all born. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. There is none righteous, no, not one. It is God who has to make the first move in a person's heart. We also know from Ephesians 2 that we are all born dead in trespasses and sins, so there's nothing in us to respond when we're dead. So this is God's work to open a person's heart. This takes the pressure really off in evangelism in the sense we are commanded to present the gospel to people, but it's not to be successful based on our human persuasiveness or oratory skill or an excellent presentation done in perfection of the gospel. No, God uses the seed that's planted. Some water, some plant, but God is the one who causes the growth to happen. So upon hearing the truth that her heart had been prepared by God and he's the one who opened it to hear, she believed, and all those who were with her, her household, believed the message as well, and they were baptized. We know they were indwelt then by the Holy Spirit, though they did not speak in tongues. The further you get away from the birth of the church, the less of that you see. So they were believing the Lord, were baptized by water as a step of obedience, that this inward change in their heart 
was being publicly declared in baptism. Immediately, Lydia expresses her hospitality, wants them to come and stay with her, and that was so critical in the ancient world, as you know from your studies. They were mostly, inns were brothels and expensive and filthy, so opening your home was really important. What a contrast to the next woman they meet up with. It's the slave girl in verses 16 through 18. Missionary team had to be encouraged that a number of women had come to believe the gospel message they brought them. And though it was a man in the vision, come over and help us, it was a woman who God had worked in to be the first believer there. And then we read the sad story about another woman enslaved by demons and then also enslaved by men using her. These men were, uh, so she, oh yeah, she kept following Paul and crying out with a loud voice, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are pro uh, proclaiming to you the way of salvation. I mean, what she said was absolutely true. Certainly it was the truth, and the demons speaking through her were speaking the truth. We know from James that demons believe and shudder. She, she spoke of terms the Most High God and the way of salvation. It's nothing new that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He is the father of lies, and he is an expert in taking truth and mixing it with lies. If it's off on just a tweak here and a tweak there, then people's salvation is not going to be real because they're not even basing it on the truth of grace and faith alone. He is an expert at twisting truth and making it sound right. Well, with her performing, uh, rather with her proclaiming this message, following them behind, people could conclude, oh, she's part of the group, the team. Or, oh, maybe the occult world, they're all, you know, connected, it's all good. So Paul had had enough of that. And this was an attack by Satan using upon this woman. So Paul commanded the demon to come out of her in the name of Jesus. Paul had apostolic authority to do this. And I know that there are men today who claim to be apostles, but they are not, do not meet the biblical qualification of what an apostle is nor have that same uh, power, though many would tell others that that's what they are. But the dark world of demons is so real. You know what? They are behind those who claim to know the future, who claim that they're clairvoyant, they're able to tell you through cards or the stars what's gonna happen. We live in a culture that has sought to make all of this subject matter very light and fun and cute. From when I was a little girl from Casper the Friendly Ghost, you know, to all of the movies and TV shows, it's amazing if you look at them, the programs for children, the movies for children, always include sorcery or witchcraft or powers or spells being cast on people. So this is all very entertaining and done in a fluffy way. So people are desensitized to how wicked and evil and the forces of demon, it really is real and it's scary. Well, suddenly this woman is free of her demon Therefore, her fortune-telling days are over, and she's no longer able to make the money for the men who own her. And let's face it, you touch somebody's money source, and they're going to have a problem. So during the most, doing the most kind thing for this woman imaginable brings about persecution and heartache for the team. So we see the power of the gospel in the midst of persecution. 
So enraged, these uh, owners of the slave, enslaved girl uh, dragged Paul and Silas bodily before their town leadership, the magistrates, and they make this ridiculous claim that the whole city is in an uproar and confusion because of these unlawful Jews. So in verse 22, we see in an instant this mob mentality and the authorities ordering them to try to appease the mob will beat them with rods. And when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And because of that command, we read, and he threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. You know, Satan certainly thought he was the victor here. He was silencing these men. But Paul and Silas, though beaten severely, and their backs torn, bleeding, swollen, not unable to even lie down, they are praying, they are praising, they are singing songs of praise to the Lord. And you know what? They have a captive audience. The other prisoners are listening in such a bleak place. They were in the worst of circumstances. They had physical injury. They had pain. Their feet were in these horrible stocks. And yet they weren't crying out to get somebody over to Lydia's house to get a lawyer to get, you know, that wasn't what they were doing. They didn't know what would happen to them the next day, but they were singing praises to God anyway. What a testimony to everybody around them that they could rejoice in the Lord. Not in their circumstances, even though they were awful, but they rejoiced in the Lord. You know why they were able to do this is because they viewed their circumstances through the lens of what they knew about God and his word. And that made all the difference. They knew God brought them to this place. They knew he closed all those other doors. They knew they brought, God wanted him serving, uh, them serving in this place. And this is what happened. Well, then this is what happened. The other men in the prison were their new captive audience. And rather than becoming self-focused and, and full of self-pity, as I said, they viewed this situation as just another place to shine a light for Jesus. And the same is true for you and I today. When you find yourself in a therapy office, in a hospital, in a nursing home, in a difficult job with difficult family members, it's not by accident that you are placed where you are and that God wants you to shine for a light for him there with those people that you rub shoulders with. I know that I want to be more like these men. They had a song in their hearts even though they were in pain, physically, emotionally. You know what, while music is being heard suddenly, there's this great earthquake and everything begins to shake and the doors are opened up and everyone's chains just break free. That had to be quite shocking. Can you imagine? They're on verse three of whatever song and boom, the whole place is shaking. The sleeping jailer wakes up, sees all the doors are open, assumed everyone's already gone and he goes to kill himself by falling on the sword. But before he could go through with it, Paul cries out, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer is shocked. He brings the men out. He gets the lights on. And he asks the most important question anyone could ever ask. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Their testimony impacted him so greatly. Notice the important answer to the question. It wasn't go join the church we just started at Lydia's. It wasn't go get baptized. It was believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And your household, who they believe as well. So 
He had heard about what happened to the slave girl. He had heard these men singing and praising. He concluded, they have an answer. Look how they are in the worst of circumstances. So they taught him the truth about Jesus, that everything he claimed to be, he was. And that's why they were how they were. The rest of the jailer, his household, sat and listened to the truth, and they believed. And they publicly identified their faith in Jesus by being baptized as well. I mean, think of the moments of time. We're not talking hours. We're talking moments. He's ready to kill himself. Now, in just a few moments later, he has a heart of compassion. He's cleaning their wounds. He's um, rejoicing. He's putting food before them. This, this is another miracle that happened right in this moment as well. What a contrast to a man who is just going to take his own life. Now he has joy because he knows his sins are forgiven. Only God could bring about this amazing change. The next morning, the magistrates send their policemen to tell the guys they can go. And Paul's not going to let them get by with just doing that. No, if they want to let us go, they can come down themselves. And really, I read a good thought that Paul, having a love for the believers yet to be part of this community, wanted to do what was right so that this behavior wouldn't be the norm for believers who would come behind them. He says, is this how you treat Roman citizens? You, without a trial, beat them, imprison them? I'm sure the color drained out of these magistrates' face because they really could have gotten in serious trouble, lost all their jobs, and been in a critical situation themselves. But uh, Paul and Silas, before leaving, take their time, go see Lydia, encourage her and the believers there, and then they are um, off. They had just suffered, yet they're there, out of prison, encouraging the new believers before they leave. Certainly, this didn't turn out the way Satan had thought it would turn out. God's plans overrule man's, and e man's evil intentions. This persecution and reality added more people to the church. So now it wasn't just Lydia and her family and her household. Now we have the jailer in his household, and they're all part of the body of Christ together. So we shall zip. Courage to reach the, um, the Thessalonica's, uh, in the city of Thessalonica with the gospel. Jesus the Messiah proclaimed to the Jews and Greeks in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 17. The team leaves Philippi. They travel about 100 miles in verses 1 through 4. Uh, and then in Thessalonica, there was a synagogue. So Paul reasoned with them three different Sabbaths. You read the book of Thessalonians and all the stuff that Paul taught them in that short three-week period is amazing. They had open dialogues together. The Messiah had to suffer. He had to rise from the dead. He taught the scriptures, giving evidence as Jesus Messiah. No doubt the things we studied last year, prophetic Psalms 22, uh, 16, Isaiah 53. And we read that there were some who were persuaded, who were Jewish, and also Greek-fearing uh, Greeks also believed, and some leading women. Not surprising, those who rejected the message brought great opposition, and so they had to leave. Of course, they couldn't find Paul and Silas, so they drag off one of the new believers, Jason, and uh, try to take out their anger on him. 
And then Paul and Silas travel 50 miles away and the gospel goes to Berea. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek men and women. They listened to Paul, they compared what he said with scripture, and many believed. These Jewish people were willing to examine the scriptures, and they investigated the evidence in the Old Testament. Uh, prominent Greek men and women believed as well. Amazing, uh, the previous opposition from the last town gets wind where they are, makes this long hike themselves just to stir up trouble. The believers uh, sent Paul on to, uh, to Athens and Silas and Timothy would meet up later with them. And so Paul arrives in Athens, the intellectual center of the world. And Paul is troubled by the idolatry that he sees. Greek mythology, where every god ever invented, was being worshipped here in Athens. As Paul looks around, he's really provoked to anger because it's all such blasphemy against the true God. And again, he reasoned in the local synagogue with Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. The highly esteemed philosophers of that day didn't think there was any afterlife. Life is about avoiding pain and getting pleasure. And so they didn't necessarily agree with each other, these uh, intellectuals sit around and discuss things, but they did agree that he was an idle babbler. And so they brought him to the Areopagus, which is a place where you would present what you have to teach. And these people brought him there, not because they really cared what he had to say, but this was a pastime for the intellectual people to be entertained by new thoughts and fads passing by. But Paul is so wise, he perceived the, the audience, he sees the altar to the unknown God, and he takes that and uses this amazing opportunity to present the gospel in such a clear way. He gets their attention by saying, I noticed that you have, and let me tell you about the God that you don't know about. And he's the creator of all the world, of all things. That was probably about as popular as presenting this truth to a group of scientists who teach evolution that was not going to be well received. He taught them that God is the Lord of heaven and earth, that he doesn't dwell in temples made with human hands, that God needs nothing, that he himself is the one who gives life and breath to all things. His common grace is seen in Psalm 104. All people are blessed by God, whether they deny his existence or not. God has appointed the determined times of all the nations and mankind. And then we read that he said, we live in God, we live and move and have our being. God is the creator, the ruler, the giver of life. He is in sovereign control. He can be seen in creation. Therefore, such a powerful divine God is not the creation of your little gold, silver, and wood or stone objects. The most important point of the message is seen in verse 30. God is declaring that all men everywhere should repent. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. There is a judgment day coming. How often people don't include this part in their gospel? How many books, how many TV and radio pastors talk only about your life right now and finding joy and being happy? And there's no mention of sin because there is a judgment day coming. And again, Satan gets the victory for that, mixing truth and error. But there is a judgment day and the response by most was predictable, 
sneering. The Greeks didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. Some said, oh, we'll hear from you again, but they never did hear from him again. The same, but there were some who heard, noticed two Greek men, a woman named Damaris and some others. So, by way of application, ladies, you know what? God prepares the hearts of people to hear the truth. It is our responsibility to tell them. We can't make them believe, we can't have it make sense, but we just have to be faithful to tell them and trust God to do the rest. The rest. And then know your audience. Try to connect in some way when you're going to share the gospel with someone uh, so you can get their attention. Paul did that. And then know enough about the scriptures to proclaim the essentials. We live in a culture, well, we used to live in a culture with a Judeo-Christian ethic. When I was a little girl, you know, kids who didn't go to church, at least everybody knew Bible stories. But we have generations that have grown up with no knowledge of God. Holidays are completely secular. Children have been taught for decades that you come from nothing, so you're not responsible to anything. The Bible is said to be irrelevant, but we must still proclaim the truth. It is God who opens the hearts of people and draws them to himself, even though they say, I don't believe. We need courage like Paul. Wherever he went, there was opposition, but it didn't shut him down. Physical affliction, injury, prison, never silenced these missionaries. How could they go on like that? How did they cope in pain and disappointment? How could they have a song of joy? I close with this quote from Charles Spurgeon by a message he gave in 1885. He said, would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your, uh, your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. That is, learn everything you can about the Godhead, his, his attributes. Be lost in his immensity, and you will come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief and sorrow, so speak peace to the mind in trial as a devout musing or focus upon the subject of the Godhead. Ladies, he has to be our focus. His power, his attributes, his sovereignty, his goodness, his kindness, that's what we have to view the lens of our lives through. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for allowing us to know how the gospel spread. I thank you that you have always loved the lost, the hurting. You've elevated women from cultures where we were nothing. I thank you for the gospel putting us all on equal footing before you at the cross. Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us to go forth from here with a new determination to share the word of truth, to throw the seed out, regardless of the response, and to trust you to do the work. In Jesus' name, amen.